Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Curious Cult Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Harrell-Ambus, and with me today, I have somebody I've actually been wanting to talk to for a while, since meeting him a few years ago. His name is Michael Smolin. Um, I think he will correct me, but he's the COO of the Smolin Group, um, and I'm very excited to talk to him about his curiosity and this incredible family business that they have scaled into this huge company uh, globally, as far as I understand. Mike, thank you for joining me. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. It's great, uh, great to be here. I, I, we met actually. We were both at a conference called Stream, and what happened was you came up to me and said, "I like your socks," and I said, "I like socks," and you said, "Those are my socks," and I said, "Well, I like your socks." Uh, I mean, that was literally the uh, the discussion, yeah. and um, I think that, that's how we uh, we met. Which which I, uh, I I very much do. I love that uh, that business. I was um, I was very sad when I couldn't continue as a customer, but that that's exactly how we um, how we met, right? Yeah, in fact, uh, for about seven years while I ran that company, it was how I met a lot of people, literally at airports around the world, just walking up to them and going, hey, those are my socks. And people looking at me going, no, I think those are my socks. <laughs> Isn't that a cool, uh, a cool way to establish your brand? You know, like, you know, Apple, somebody opens their, uh, their MacBook or whatever. Yours, you know, a guy folds his legs and, and, and you see your socks. Like, that's a super cool thing to experience, no? It really was one of those moments when you know that your business has kind of grown bigger than you thought it would is uh, I I was in an airport, I think it was like London or something. And I was like, fuck, are those my socks? And they were, they genuinely so cool. were. So yeah, cool. a very cool thing. And I mean, I'm sure you have this sort of um, out-of-body experience pretty often with what you do because you guys have got a massive footprint now globally. So on that little um, segue, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So I, um, to correct you, I'm the Chief Growth and Innovation Officer of uh, Small and Globally. Basically, I run a couple of things. So I run our brand marketing, I run our growth function around the world, so our, our global client program, our uh, business development teams around the world. I run our e-commerce function, which I think is, as everybody does, the kind of future of, you know, everything as we think digital services. Um and I also run our innovation function, which is basically our centralized R&D capability. So a, a, a sort of motley crew portfolio What don't stuff. you run, Mike? Um, I, I don't actually run <laughs> a lot a of the operations, portfolio. which is the hard stuff. Okay. You know, we've, okay. we've got brilliant um, operations. I mean, I grew up in the operations business and, um, and finally managed to claw my way out because it's, uh, it, it's hard. But I don't run yeah. the operations of the, uh, the day-to-day stuff, which is run kind of out of our regional, regional hubs. So we, we've got a European business, a Middle East, South Asia business, uh, Asia Pacific, and then Latin America and Africa. So about, uh, I think we're about 56 countries today. Uh, with offices and scaling about 85,000 people full-time around the world. Um, and I have, uh, I have two kids, five and two. Lockdown has been, you know, all kinds of fucking chaos. I, I've never built more stuff to keep children busy in my life. Uh, you know, and, and online schooling sucks, if we can just put it that way. Uh, they, they, it's just, it's terrifying. But uh, two kids, and thank God it's been summer. Um, yep. I've got a fantastic wife and I, uh, I live in Cape Town. I've been here three and a half years. I've been back three and a half, huh. four years. I, I lived in um, nice. Shanghai, my wife and I, for five or six years before we came back. Rad. Um, immediately off script, uh, tell me about living in Shanghai. Like culture, culture shock, uh, mind blowing. What was it like? It was, it, what happened was, we had reached a bit of a weird personal ceiling. Uh, I lived in Johannesburg with my wife and we had just gotten married. We'd been together a lot, you know, five or six or seven or 10 years. And 
we had re- I was running a, a big sales business for one of the big local FMCG brands, and I'd kind of hit a bit of a ceiling, and we were in a weird cycle of life a little bit. And my brother, who's our global CEO, phoned me and he said, why don't you go run our business in China? And uh, our business in China was sort of small. We were having a lot of issues. The potential obviously is gigantic. And he, he called me and I started laughing. I turned to my wife and said, Dave thinks we should go live in China. And she, she turned around and said, wow, when? And I thought he was joking. And she was kind of planning when we were going to go. And, and, and there, I sort of looked at her and thought, Okay, maybe everybody's not joking. And we, we went and we, we went for two years. And after two years, we we'd barely scratched the surface. I mean, we had a, we learned, um, we learned Mandarin. We, we, we started to kind of travel, but we thought, you know what? This is ridiculous. Two years is a heartbeat. And so we ended up staying five or six years. It was the most phenomenally life trajectory changing experience. Hmm. We are actively homesick from. China. When when wow. I see photos or I have memories, I feel homesick from our, our friends and our uh, the people. And uh, work was hard. You know, life was tricky. The experience was was interesting, but but it was it was the best experience I've had in my life so far. It was just amazing. And and um, active. Both of us are actively homesick. My son was born there. I mean, it was an amazing wow. experience. I I mean, I want you to unpack a little bit more why it was such a life-changing experience. And this does, for me, um, play directly into the theme of curiosity, like experiencing new things, exposing yourself to new experiences. Uh, It helps you evolve your thinking and see a different worldview, right? We're so conditioned to exist in a plane that is socialized on us, the Western way or the South African way or the white male way or whatever. Like, what was it for you? You know, I think I think that is as a starting point this idea of shattering everything that was normal and everything you kind of took for granted from a perspective point of view. And exactly as your point, you know, I have this argument very often with people about China. There's oh China's communist and it's, you know, you can't it's this and that and this and that. And human rights violations and et cetera, et cetera. Now, look, I'm not gonna comment on what I think is right or wrong, but I will argue that to have such a polarized view of what is correct and not correct is ridiculous if you haven't experienced other parts of it. You, you know, the idea of how China run their political system is extraordinarily efficient, extremely productive. Um, and yes, on the periphery, there are things that you could question. But, you know, can you not question a government that doesn't provide toilets well enough that kids fall in them and die? <laughs> you know, and you don't call that a human rights violation. So, you know, I, I, I think that if you, it, we had a very adventure mindset about the things. So when there were things that bugged us or tripped us up, you know, it was an adventure. Those were the things that you got to mm. sort of work around. And it, it was so, it's such a big place. It's such a dynamic place. It's such a fast changing, diverse place, you know, and we, we, we run a sales business there. So we were operating in, I think, 420 cities, um, there were about 30,000 people in the structures that we ran. And so I saw everything from, you know, villages, literally villages um, to Shanghai, which is, you, you know, if you haven't been, it's, I, I encourage people that in, the, in your mental library of the world, there are things that need to be there. You know, the Sahara yeah. Desert needs to be there. Mumbai needs to be there. Shanghai needs to be there. You know, Brazil, it's important that you have, the context of how big this earth is and how, how different it is just so you have a, a different frame of reference. But, 
you know, I think your, your point about curiosity is right. You know, unless you're curious about this stuff, I find, you know, people are so binary in their opinion. I, I'll give you a good example. We went to, one of the things I really wanted to do was go to North Korea. And I think I'm one of the only people on the planet who's been to North Korea and not <laughs> South Korea. So um, we, we went to North Korea and you can fly, you know, people said, well, you, you know, it's completely, it's very dangerous and they'll, you, you know, watch you every second and you, how, how do you do sneak in? There were two flights a day from Beijing into North Korea. I took 780 photos in four days. We had the most amazing experience. It was mind warping just because it's, you know, very, very strange. But yeah. People, people were walking down the street, kids were going to school in cars, buses, you know, the underground system would have put um, a lot of developing countries to shame. And unless you experience that and you're curious about that, all you hear is Western media's perspective on North Korea and it's a disaster zone. And I'm, I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but you know, you've got to be curious about what your own truth is about it. Yeah. And I think um, both of us being South African natives, um, the opposite is true externally, right? We live in a city, Cape Town, that is beautiful and one of the top tourist attractions in the world and blah, blah, blah. But if you talk to anyone in a developed market, they're like, are, are you kidding? You live in the rape capital of the world. Totally. What, what well, are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. So yeah. it is all about perspective. Um, and that is one of the things that recently I've realized about my obsessive curiosity and all the people that I speak to is curiosity gives you this perspective that nothing is the way it seems, that you should challenge and push the boundaries on everything. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's why I like it so much. But we've gone down a rabbit hole. So I want to jump back a little bit. Um, uh, there's so much to unpack about you and your story and your family and the business, but I want you to give me a brief version of how you ended up where you are. Because for me, sure. it is it is quite an astounding story all the way back to how Smallin was founded and how you are in this position now. Um, yeah. I feel like it's something people should know about. Sure. I, I'll give you the very uh, quick version. And I'll lead into how I got here as well. Um, my grandfather was a rugby player in the 30s and he went to the Springbok trials. In those days, you would you know, buy a ticket, go to the trials and you'd make the team when I make the team. And the coach at the time was... Oh, sorry, really? Uh, Is that how it worked back then? You would buy yeah, a ticket to go and try out? You, you would, uh, I mean, you would, you would get invited to the trials, but it's not yeah. like you would, you know, you would you buy would a Greyhound bus ticket and you would, yeah, no, wow. not even. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you, not I think, you had to buy your Springbok blazer, uh, you know, <laughs> 22 shillings Crazy. or whatever. The, yeah, yeah. You know, Sorry. And bizarre when you on. think about, you know, modern sporting world. And so yeah. what happened was he, he didn't make the 1931 team and Donnie Craven was the coach and he said to him, look, go start a business for your family, you know, you, you won't play rugby forever. You'll make the next team, which he did in, in 1933. And he, he never had a formal education. And so what happened was there was somebody in the kind of team ecosystem who had a paint manufacturing business and some people who had a, a general dealer. And what he said is to the paint guy, I will sell your paint on commission to the general dealer, this general dealer and general dealers up and down the main road in, in, in Johannesburg uh, on a commission. And we we romantically think we're the first outsourced sales rep in the world because the idea of having somebody selling your products that didn't, weren't employed by you, was, we don't think it was heard of anywhere else yeah. in the world, right? So he started this business and then he you know, got a couple of other little manufacturers and he built a small syndicated sales business literally out of the boot of his car up and down um, the, the main road in Johannesburg. And, and that kind yeah. of went through uh, World War II, which he went to go fight. His brother, Care took the business. Um, he actually, good story, he, when he was a little kid, he, he was running with scissors 
and he fell and he got uh, the scissors stuck in one of his eyes and he was 97% blind in his eyes, in his one no. eye. And um, it, it, great story. And so what happened was when he went to try for the, when we get enrolled for the army, they uh, were testing him and the guy who was testing him wanted him to play for the, for the army rugby that Saturday. So they said, you let me in, I'll play for the army. So, you know, you, and, and they only found out he was, he was, uh, you know, half blind when he was in the desert and a sandstorm came and blinded his other eye and they sent him home because they said, no, you, you, you actually, you, you can't see. So anyway, he, 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 he came through the war, came back. And then in the seventies, um, my dad had a formal education. He had sort of traveled and he, he saw that modern trade retail was going to be, you know, the supermarket was going to kind of change the way that retail worked from general dealer. And so he envisaged the need for professional services, sales, merchandising as an outsource functions for big manufacturers. And that was the path he kind of went down uh, very, very intelligently as at what was going to come. And he built um, quite an amazing South African business. And my brother and I uh, sort of, I joined the business uh, sort of in university. Um, I say in the university because I was a really shit student. Um, the delta between potential and and output was fucking massive. Uh, I was yeah. very good. I was very good at the casino. I was not very good at attending lectures. And after three years of my undergraduate, my parents said, "Okay, great. You know, when is graduation?" And I said, "Probably in another two or three years' time." And so they said, "Well, you, you know, get a job and pay for the next two or three years." So I, which I admire. I, I really admire sure. that. Um, so many parents make that threat and never follow it up. Oh, they, no, they did. And so I, um, I became a sales rep during the day and I did night courses uh, at Vits to finish my... Um, and a sales my, rep at Smolin. A sales rep at Smolin. So I okay. applied to the business to become a sales rep. One guy gave me a job and he, I, he, he later said to me, the reason he gave me a job was to torment me so badly that I would never come back. Um, and and he, uh, he, he ended up being, he, he failed miserably and he ended up being kind of my mentor for, I don't know, wow. the next 10 or 15 years and a, and a, and a father figure for me um, through the business. And so I sort of, when, when David, my brother joined, he had a private equity business um, and he went, uh, he went to India with EO and the guy said to him, are you in your family business? And he said, um, no, 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 I've, I've got my own business. And they said, oh, it's a terrible business. And he said, no, 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 it's a, it's a very good business. So they said, oh, you hate your family. And he said, no, I love my family. And, and then, you know, something in his brain tweaked and he thought, why am I not in our business? And he came back and he said to my dad, why have you never, you know, asked me to join the business? Yeah. My dad said, you know, like all of you, I didn't want to pressure any of you to be in the business. It's your choice. And David said, um, I, you know, I want to be in the business. And it was a great sort of time for us because we, uh, we, we had hired a non-family CEO who eventually left uh, to go to America. Um, that's a whole nother story. And eventually the place that he went to, we've, we've now taken them on as a big minority, a massive North American business. And David joined as our kind of CEO uh, elect. And at that stage, I'd kind of worked my way through the business and, and we were kind of working together. And we, we had this wonderful um, opportunity to do this together. And, and our goal for the last 10 or, or 12 years has been to globalize the business and, and through partnerships, through organic, through some M&A. And, and, and that's where we kind of sit today, you know, broad spectrum of services, 55 countries. That's incredible. Um, I'm, because it was a short version of a long story, I just want to put some timeframes in place. So when did you join the business as a sales rep? So I joined uh, 21 years ago. Uh, wow. So 2000. Yeah. Uh, Dave so it's taken you 
it's taken you that long to ascend through the business and you did it that oh, way, sure. right? I mean, when we first um, actually sat down and had a long conversation, you were telling me that that was really important to you, that there was this ascension and working your way up. Yeah, I, th- I think that in order to know something very well, you've got to do it. You know, you can't just kind of learn it. I mean, you can sort of learn the base layer or, or uh, you know, anecdotally, but if you don't understand exactly the mechanics I don't think that you can operate it at some stage if that's what you want to do. And so, one, it was important to try and not for the business to sort of get rid of the nepotism um, feeling, which for me was important more than anything. Um, and two, to learn the business from from the ground up, which I'm, I'm very happy about because David and I have a, a wonderful, um, you know, obviously he knows the business inside out now, but, you know, we've got a great kind of, um, I've been through the whole business and, and, and he's got a, a brilliant strategic perspective. And so we, we really enjoy the way that we collaborate and stuff. It's, we're very, very fortunate. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing to watch. Um, and the last thing I want to just chat about on the, the family side of this business is one of the things that really um, made me stop and consider your um, perspective on the world and your ability to be introspective and have some conscious um, view of yourself is you were telling me that before you took on the leadership reins, you and your brother insisted on going and figuring out how not to fuck up a family-run business. Um, so how, how, talk me through that. What was that like? What did you do? Well, there, I mean, the statistics are fantastic. And there's there are literally sayings through every language, through every point in history, you know, rags to riches and three generations. And it's always in three generations. So we are destined to fuck this thing up. Like that is, it's like 92% of all family businesses, the third generation fuck up. But but the reason is because, you know, the founder works extremely hard, you know, gets one brick in the ground, the next generation, very entrepreneurial, build the thing um, into something. And the third generation are just lazy and useless and stupid often and, 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 and break it. And so um, we, I, I think that was why nobody wanted to join the business initially because, you know, we, we didn't want to break it. But we, we spent some time at, at Harvard on courses to understand family businesses. We, we did a lot of research on um, why they fail, how you stop them from fail. And it, and it only gets more complicated from here. We're fortunate that there are only sort of two of us in the business and we both get on very well. But when you think of, you know, our children, who's allowed in, how does it work? And, you, you know, you yeah. find that there's all of these kind of architectures to protect the business and some extremely strict. So, you know, somebody has to have 20 years of experience outside of the business, uh, wow. an, an advanced master's degree, um, you know, speak five languages, you know, really tough mm. um, stuff in place. Uh, and so we put some of that stuff in place um, for us and for future generations. But, you know, the, the anecdotal book is uh, only the paranoid survive, right? And and that's how we feel. You know, we're, we're paranoid not to fuck it up because we're yeah. kind of destined to in a way. And, um, and so we're, we're trying every day to make it better and not to make it worse, obviously. Yeah, I mean, that, that concept of legacy is just so big when you get to a business that is uh, as vast as the one that you guys control. Because it is, uh, just in terms of the scale that it's at, it's going to survive more than likely beyond your life. Because destroying a business this big will take a generation. will take a long time. We, we hope. As long as I can give it to the next generation to fuck up, I'm ha- you know, 
as long as yeah. I don't drop the baton while I'm running the relay, I'm okay. <laughs> but yeah, oh, that's great. Um, no, I get we, it. You know, so. hopefully we, we, we've, we've got it to a place that is, uh, I think maybe not big enough, but diverse enough mm. to not easily break. And that was our, yeah. that was our point about globalization, right? Because South Africa, as, as passionate as we are about it, as, um, you, you know, f- sort of focused on it as we are, as ambitious here as we are, we know that things out of our control could change. And you could, you know, uh, in Harvard, we, uh, one of the families was uh, the family that owns this brand called Tilda Rice, massive global rice business in Europe and, and the rest of the world. They were um, around the time of Idi Amin and th- that's where their family had their first business. And, you know, he literally woke up one day and he said, I had a dream, 30 days, all foreigners out, adios. And they had to leave you know, their massive family business, go start again in the UK, which they did, rebuilt a gigantic business. Um, and, and that, you, you know, ha, ha, if you don't have any diversification in geography and services and, and all of that, you know, you, you, you think out of your control can wipe you out. You know, COVID comes, can wipe you out um, pretty quickly. And so diversity, uh, my dad's, you know, great saying is um, increase your alternatives, uh, decrease your dependencies. And his whole focus and his mm. kind of whole career was what is the 1% of our business and how do I make sure that I'm growing the one percent and 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 not the ninety nine percent? Because I think you can t- get distracted by the ninety nine percent. Sure, I love that, and I think that applies to a business of any size. If you've got Absolutely. one client and you're dependent on them, you are screwed. And Absolutely. in fact, it's a big part of what I'm telling um, the average person in the street now: is a secure financial future is a diversified financial future, even as an yeah. individual. In everything, in everything, exactly right. You know, yeah, um, it's not just Bitcoin. <laughs> Let's not go down don't that even, rabbit hole. Don't even. No, don't even. no we won't even. Um, okay, so w- can you think back to a person uh, in your life that sparked a curiosity in you? Because I firmly believe whether you acknowledge it as a thing, curiosity or not, people yeah. in your position, people who succeed, um, people who do anything remarkable are fundamentally curious. Uh, was mm. there someone who you can remember and going, that was the person? Look, it's going to sound quite cliche, but I mean, it, it sort of makes sense. You know, growing up, my dad was our gateway to business and we uh, would talk about business at the dinner table. And I was, um, my my eldest brother is nine years older than me and my middle brother is seven years older than me. So I was relatively much younger for the sort of subject matter at the table. And so they would, mm. you know, my, my, my brothers were in high school, they were playing like stock exchange games and, you know, they, they would talk about business. And so he was our gateway to business and he was for, for me an, an iconic businessman. You know, he, he worked very hard. He was an entrepreneur. Uh, he interacted socially with people. He had a very vibrant kind of business life and, and he was very passionate about learning always. He still is. He's 75 years old. Um, you know, he, he pushes himself to learn again. One of his big kind of anecdotal sayings is if you're green, you grow, if you're ripe, you rot. Um, and the, 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 the message is, you know, if you think that you've gotten to a point in your life where you know enough, that's when you start to die, you know, but if you continually green, you're continually growing, um, that is feeding yourself. And, and, you know, for as long as I can remember, there was this push to be, inquisitive. There was this push to be, to, to learn about stuff. And I think that consciously or unconsciously has stuck with all of us forever, whether it's something that's interesting, whether it's something we're bad at, whether it's something we should be um, double clicking a little bit more, you know, I, he, his, his sort of absolute passion for continuous learning, that 
I would say has stuck. Um, I, I, we probably yeah. don't give them enough credit for it because kids are shit to their parents. But, um, you know, I, I definitely yeah. think that he deserves the credit for it. Um, and I mean, I've only just thought of this as a question, but when you say that, you know, you would engage with him and your brothers were learning stock stuff and when they were in high school, give me a, a standard dinner table at your house. Like, was it dinner every night? You guys all sitting together, engaging in conversation or was it like watch TV, don't talk to each other? Like, what was it like? Yeah, I mean, we, it was, so my, my dad traveled a lot for work. Um, I, I don't remember him not being there a lot. I remember once they said to me, um, when I was a little kid, they said, you know, where's your dad? And I pointed at the telephone because they'd always say, you know, there's dad and you'd pick up the phone. <laughs> uh, but I don't remember him not being there a lot. And I remember dinner, you, you, there was no TV. You, you had to switch off TV. I mean, it did help that there were no devices and that, um, you know, there, there was Mnet open time and that was kind of, you know, it for <laughs> South Africans. Um, so there was not a lot of temptation, if we're honest, but it was it was no TV. We'd all sit around the table. My mom would cook dinner uh, and we would sit and you know, how was your day? How, what did you do at school? How was you? Mm. And the discussion wouldn't be around, you know, businessy, fancy stuff. It would be, you know, what are you doing at school? How do you think about that? You know, just sort of exploring um, ideas. And, exactly. And he, he, he wasn't, you know, he was, he was more sort of thinking about how he was teaching you in a way that didn't feel like instruction. It was, mm. uh, you know, what is your, and, and my mom, my, my mom is, is brilliant. She's, um, I'd say smarter than my whole family combined. And, and up until I got my MBA, I think she was uh, more, more well-educated than my whole family combined. Um, wow. And she, she was a scientist uh, by uh, kind of uh, by, by, by trade and by profession. So she was immensely curious uh, as well. And so, you, you know, you, you kind of had these two curious parents sitting on the table saying, you know, what did you do at school? How did, what did you think about that? How are you? Yeah. What? Um, and so it was just, yeah, it was, uh, I probably romanticize it, his, you know, looking back on it, but that's that's kind of how I, I have the memory. Yeah, you snuck that in there. A scientist as a mother and a business person as a father. Wow, what a killer combination for a curious and obsessive life. I mean, science is all about being curious about something, proving or disproving it, and then carrying on. Yeah, and if only we all looked at everything um, that way, right? I'm reading uh, Adam Grant, uh, some of Adam Grant stuff at the moment, and he, he yeah. talks about exactly that. He says, you know, more people would think about stuff like scientists being open to, open to the argument because that's the point about getting to an end point as opposed to trying to slam my position down your throat, which most of us... Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's one of the nickisms that I try and live by is strong opinions loosely held. Like, just yeah, challenge your exactly, opinion all exactly, the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, exactly. So... I, in my experience, uh, I've realized that curiosity is one of the least efficient ways to do anything of interest. However, it is more often than not the right way to do it. Um, so how does that play out into your work life and your personal life? Because being curious takes time. Like you actually have to spend yeah. time wasting. And I'll give you the example um, that I've, I've given to other people. The other day, I started, for whatever reason, investigating the history of peanut butter. Like, where did, it, where did it come from? Why do we have peanut butter? Amazing. And it is Oh my it is God, now, you, now you're going to destroy 15 minutes of my, um, my <laughs> no, non-existent I, time there because now I want to know. <laughs> it's fascinating, but useless information. I thought it was going to get me to a point, but it really was just an interesting um, history in peanut butter. And I literally blew four hours, four hours, wrote a whole newsletter and then got to the end I, of it. I and I was it. like, there's nothing valuable here <laughs> other than the interest of it. 
<laughs> but it's interesting, uh, right? And that's curiosity. So it is interesting. Question, I totally buy it. It yeah. is. And like that question then is how do you make curiosity part of your day if it's inefficient? And this is yeah. one of the things that I'm realizing uh, studying curiosity in the corporate world is um, one of the reasons it's not pushed as a thing is that it is inefficient. And we look at quarterly results as ways to raise efficiency. And you can't say to your shareholders, well, I spent three months being curious about this and I didn't make any money. Yeah. It, it's such a, um, I just going back to your previous question, your, your peanut butter story made me yeah. think about this. I had a Latin, I did Latin for matric. I don't even know if you can still do Latin. But, uh, I had a Latin um, a teacher and his name was Hugh Wilson. And he was, uh, when I had him, he was about, I don't know, in his eighties. Uh, my brothers both had him at school and we went to uh, King Edwards in Joburg, which is a very typical kind of old model C uh, boys school, very sort of you know, strict, learned your manners, wore a blazer and a tie to school, mm. the good stuff. And his his uh, class from Senate 8 to Matric was all about being curious. It was exactly what he said. You can wow. come to me with any question about anything. I'll never forget. I, we walked in on a day one of Standard 8, which is whatever, grade 10. And there was a giant drawing of a vagina on the board. Like a giant, you know, a massive drawing. Of the, An old boys school. <laughs> At an all-boys school, I mean, we were like, uh, this morning, so excuse me, um, what's on the board? It was like, oh, it's a vagina. I'm explaining the parts to the form, whatever's, you know. And he he was, I, I still have my Latin books from each year because it is so packed wow. with so much stuff. And he said, I, I want to make you interesting at cocktail parties. You will do the Latin and the mythology and the conjugations, all that shit. But I, I want to, and he, he was also a phenomenal educator, you know, taught mm-hmm. you to be curious about stuff. It didn't have to be part of the syllabus or, you know, um, and so I, I wanted to sneak that in there because mm. your, your peanut butter story made me think about it. And I'm actually going to go back and review these Latin books because there's so much good shit in there. Yeah, there's for, so much in there. Besides the drawings of, uh, of yeah. vaginas. Um, but but I do you carry on, that's for me yeah. is the beauty of this obsessive curiosity. And I say this phrase a lot, if you've listened to my podcast before, I'm sorry, but it's the smashing together of unexpected things that gives you this fresh context exactly. on the thing you're doing. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. And without the curiosity, you never get, you, you know, you'll continue down a linear path, but you'll never get that smashing together. It's also somebody's, um, where interse- I was listening to Scott Galloway this morning. He was talking about intersections and that's where you get progress. Mm. Oh, you mm. know what it was? It was Jack Dorsey is talking about why Square bought Tidal. And everybody oh. said he's a moron. Twitter should have bought yeah. Tidal and got into content. And he gave a whole spiel about intersections. And anyway, uh, but he's right. That's where curiosity, yeah. you know, that intersection. So, you know, your point about uh, business and personal, um, I, I think it's tricky because unless it's your business, your time, your ownership, a uh, f- mm. few people, uh, there's a great book, which I'm rereading called Founders Mentality. Uh, and it talks about why, you know, why it's so important to be a founder and why founders are so important. But, you know, you have this obsession and we're not founders, but I would say that we sort of see ourselves as founders because we, we take mm. on the responsibility of, of the legacy. Sure. You have this obsession to improve, to, you know, find uh, innovation, to be creative. And I think that you, you do it in your own time. You do it between things. You form a bad habit of multitasking, which, which I do uh, very often, particularly in a world where we're sitting on a screen so I can, you know, absorb and do something um, on the side. Um, but I, I find my, my brain in a way, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, is not challenged enough unless it's you know, seeking through information. Weirdly enough, mm. what I do when I try to do admin is I watch TV shows 
and do the admin because what it does is it sort of occupies enough of my brain to keep me interested so I can do the admin. And yeah. so in our professional lives, hugely curious about, you know, everything from kind of new ways of doing things, startups, seeing new companies and seeing how we can kind of create these collisions as you call them, because that's mm-hmm. where, you know, you get big leaps in terms of progress. In our personal life, it drives our spouses fucking nuts. And I, I say it really? because I, I talk about David and I in the same. We are, we are pedantic about optimizing. You know, there's got to be a better way. I'll give you an example. Mm. We, I, I probably have 30 bags, you know, work bags and travel because we, I need to find the perfect bag for travel, you know, and every time David yeah. will find a, a bag, he'll, he'll buy us both one. Cause it, you know, I found it. It's got, you know, that pocket we needed for the sanitizer. It's got that, you know? Um, and I, I mean, lockdown, you can imagine my, my wife actually, I, if we didn't have Astra, I think she would have killed me and buried me in the garden because everything that could have been optimized in my house, I was sitting here and whether it was, you know, solar, whether it was the garden, whether it was stuff in the house. I, I mean, I had, I, what is the weird stuff? A kid's shoe rack, you know, in a piece of slot in the thing built to fit that thing, you know, home gym weight rack, but you know, it, it, you, you can't imagine, but it, it's, you know, it's this, I think there's a it's combination obsessive. of, it's, it's obsessive around not mm. being happy with the status quo and a need for curiosity. And if you kind of have two of those things, the obsessiveness away from status quo is driving you forward and the curiosity is sort of feeding that. I think that's, you know, the, the great way to look at it. Um, I had the same experience with my partner in lockdown because we, we've never worked in close proximity to each other like we did. And I, I like to do a lot of reading and researching and talk about the yeah. shit that I'm reading. And eventually she was like, seriously, dude. Can you just shut up? Once a week, can, just yeah. could you have dinner on your own in the room? <laughs> you can have takeaways. And that's what we did every Tuesday. She put me in my own in a room so she could have uh, silence for five hours. Yeah, I get it. Your co-workers, it's, it's quite interesting. You know, how, how much do you like your co-workers? Now my co-worker is, uh, is my wife. And I, I'm used to pre-lockdown. I was doing 100 120 flights a year for like, I don't know, 10 years, you know, so we, we were, um, she, she was not used to me being here all the time. And I think under lockdown, yeah. she was like, look, either you behave normally or we're going to have a real, um, a real you're problem. You're like, but, but this is normal. I don't know what else I'm to like, do. This is exactly how I'm used to operating. <laughs> you know, you just don't see me all the time. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, I'm interested in the, the scale of your business and how you promote a learning culture. Now, of course, I understand that there are layers, there are leadership layers, management layers, operational layers that you don't sure. touch directly. But yeah. how do you promote this idea? And I don't know if you've come across this learning organization and the work of Peter Senge on how to build a learning organization and what that means and um, how you do it very fundamentally. Um, there are some interesting companies that I've had on this podcast who yeah. just from a fundamental basis hire for learning. Like they're like, yeah. everything else is cool, but you can't teach a learning culture. So they hire yeah. for that. So what do you guys do to promote this for sort of evolutionary thinking? Yeah, I think, I think in a way we're kind of lucky because um, my dad had this, you know, mantra, if you're green and grow, you're up, you're right. And you ask anybody in our business, you know, Pakistan, Vietnam, you know, they will, it's like uh, being sort of indoctrinated in them. And so we sort of got that learning culture in a way we were fortunate because I think if you don't have it to create it is very difficult. That coupled with um, an amazing chief people officer, um, George Henderson, who has fostered, built, 
grown and scaled a learning culture. So you'll mm. find at every single level from, you know, right at the bottom layers, right to CEO, everybody has a personal development plan. Everybody's measured on wow. that plan. It's part of your incentive. So everybody is, you know, on a variable pay incentive through all the, throughout the business. A portion of that is your achievement of your personal development plan. And so it is fostered um, and, and on so many different levels, you know, from a mentorship, we've got a massive internal mentorship program. Uh, we've developed a bespoke um, executive curriculum in uh, Bled in Slovenia with their business mm. school, which is one of the one of the uh, great ones in the world to wow. to an executives to so you know right through the chain from kind of operational learning to personal development. Uh, there's a huge, huge, huge focus that is then really measured, and we we see it as. You know, we we see two areas as a big delta between us and everybody else. The one is the amount we invest in people in terms of learning and development, um, mm. um, L and D department that, that that handles this globally. Because if you invest that in people, it's going to sound you know nice and quirky and cliched, but the delta between what they do as performance and what they you know do after learning is big. But engagement is the other one. You know, the delta between somebody who's not engaged and is engaged. And you can hire the same amount of people, you can have the same amount of clients and revenue, but the output you get from somebody who's invested in from a learning and development perspective and is engaged is so much bigger than the output you get from somebody who's just come into work and kind of going through the motions. Wow. And so we know that we, we will be a much better business if we put that money in. So in a way, we kind of flipped it. Um, and I, I all credit to my dad because it was just one of his, you know, mantras. That was just it. Mm. And we took it, built it in. And, and as I say, George Henderson, you know, scaled it through the whole business as we grew. Yeah. I mean, there's so much there. You say, uh, the first comment I want to make is you say you flipped it, but um, maybe it feels like that because it's been iterated on for almost a hundred years. Yeah. Sure. I mean, you guys sure. are approaching a hundred years, right? So I think in 2030 ish. Yeah. So yeah, like exactly right. that's iteration. And now it feels like you've, you've lucked out, but actually generational iterations. Um, and the second thing is yeah. you've stumbled on um, the outcome of curiosity that their science is now there to back you up. That if you promote curiosity and a learning culture in your business, you actually increase the output per per staff member, you lower confirmation bias, you increase the ability to be resilient because people are interested in alternative solutions, you're seeing it. And mm -hmm. it's incredible to hear from the mm -hmm. ground up that you've got these personal development programs, which so many so many companies just think, I'll oh, just pay people enough money and then that's fine. But money doesn't motivate yeah, people it, fundamentally. It, it doesn't. I mean, you know, your, your point is right. We now know that money doesn't motivate people. I think you're right. We, we didn't flip it. We... we it was correct intent and it was 90 years of iterations and it's, it's, it's fucking hard to scale that yeah. as a culture through the world. Yeah. And that's why I give great credit to George Henderson for the work that he's done through the, 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 the time. Um, I also think, you know, I'm quite proud that we, before there was science to prove this, we, we knew this was the right thing to do. Similar to, um, to Purpose, we've got a, a, a huge, we've got six um, strategic initiatives over the next five years and one of them is to transform through Purpose. We do a lot of purposeful work. Um, but we've, we've, we've now taken the view that we need to, as a business, look at everything through a purpose lens as much as we do a financial lens. And for no other reason than that is the right way that businesses should mm -hmm. exist over the next 10 years. There is, mm -hmm. there, there will be science and everyone will jump on this bandwagon and Unilever is a, an amazing source of kind of North Star guidance in this. And Nike, I think to a degree, uh, also in the messaging that they put out. But 
you know, I'm proud that we've sort of said, you know what, we know it costs money. We know it's not going to give us revenue. We know it's, you know, not, not in it for the short term, but this is a direction as an organization we have to take. And again, I think it's a bit easier uh, if it's your organization, if you're listed, if you have, you know, boards and shelters and stuff that control, you know, it's trickier, but I, I think mm. it's a brave and bold move, you know, learning, curiosity, purpose, and, and maybe they're all a bit intertwined. Yeah. Um, so tell me what, um, and this could literally be anything. What are you the most curious about right now? What's piquing your obsession? I'll give you a, I'll, I'll give you, a, I'll give you a couple. The one talking yeah. about bags. I, um, yeah. I've started. We've started going away a lot as a family um, for the weekend. Can be you know rent a house on the beach. Can be trying to camp. Can be whatever. Um, and I, I like to be quite organised. So I've got a sort of go bag of stuff. Uh, charges and you know little board games and that kind of stuff. I'm trying to find the perfect bag for that. Okay. Um, and and so what I'll do is I'll go and invent, you know look at every bag in in, in the, on the planet, narrow it down, find the bra- you know all that good stuff. So I'm yeah. weirdly curious about um, why don't that you just custom make a bag? Yeah. We we had David and I had this discussion with Sealand. We said like, let us build. I was the about to mention Sealand. I know, um, and then we went on the, in, into lockdown and we stopped traveling. So maybe that's why we just sure. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I haven't done it, but maybe when we come out, um, yeah. I think we'll uh, we'll do it. Um, the other one is uh, Rimowa won't return our phone calls to uh, to build the, the best uh, you know travel hand luggage. But one day they'll see us as important customers when they, when they see. Um, and then from a business context, I'm extremely fascinated about, and, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's probably sort of trendle, but the, the entire kind of digital services, e-commerce world and how it pertains to us. So what does our business mean in a digital world? How does that work? Uh, where can we see the intersections of what we can do? How do we work with our brands? Um, what is the D2C component? You know, I, mm. I love this D2C component of brands kind of reaching directly. You know, Nike, I think, are doing 35% of their sales or 40% by D2C, which is a tre- yeah, tremendous stat. Do you think that that's contributed to their shift to Amazon and selling direct through Amazon? Or were they recently removed from Amazon? I they recently removed from Amazon. I think okay. that's the shift. That's contributing to What happens to is, is mm. if you go via, you know, a 1P or third-party marketplace, um, you lose that connection with the end customer. And I think that yeah, no what brands are realizing is that relationship that I have with the customer is so much more powerful and a lifetime value of that customer that yeah. I will move more volume via a physical retailer or a digital retailer. But if I can build that, and I think there's so many more categories to come. I think, you know, uh, toilet tissue, diapers, femcare, mm. uh, pet food, supplements, you know, all of that is just cosmetics. You know, if I can learn the yeah. customer and deliver them what they want on a replenishment basis, that is what, what is going to create a much stronger um, yeah. thing than somebody going to a supermarket shelf or searching on Amazon for my product and choosing somebody else's. There's an interesting flywheel there. Just um, you mentioned purpose-driven business, um, purpose-driven business, direct relationship with your consumer and repeat purchases versus and lifetime value. And the the business that pops into my head there is Patagonia that have understood sure. this intrinsically for decades. Oh, sure. That come to us, we will make your life better. We'll make the world better, and we'll make sure that you don't waste money. Um, and yeah. it's such a great little flywheel. Oh, um, I was talking talking to Rich Mulholland on a call recently and they were discussing purpose-driven marketing. He's so good. I, I, wow. He, oh my God, he's so good. He is so good. I'll tell him you said that. Um, I just want to listen to him I won't tell talk. him too much. I, 
I want him to narrate everything. If he could narrate every uh, book I read, that would be fantastic. He will greatly appreciate that. Um, So someone mentioned on this call purpose-driven marketing and I was like, bullshit. There is no such thing as purpose-driven marketing. Either you have a purpose-driven business and then you do marketing or you're lying to customers. There's no in-between. You can't fake that shit. So yeah. I think that there is this, you're right, the next 10 years, e-commerce, direct-to-consumer and purpose-driven business are a, a, a holy trinity that people are going to get yeah. right. I think mm. customer uh, customer experience, user experience is in there somewhere. You know, I think mm. if, if you are purpose-driven, I agree with you completely. There is no purpose-driven marketing because either you're lying or it is the truth coming out that you just want to show people. And, and I think that that's fine. I think as long as it's authentic. And this is where I like what Nike has done over the last couple of years is moving from... Mm sexy athlete wears our stuff to everybody that you know nike's for everybody it's not yeah. about who you are what you are it's about being part Democratizing of marketing where yeah exactly uh, exactly right and i think that that is um that is a good narrative i think that's an inclusive narrative and i think uh, unilever is the other one i use as my kind of north star you know they are um they are actively changing all of their business they have been for 10 years to be purpose-driven. And I, I would imagine as a massive global business, they get a huge amount of pressure from shareholders and, and executives to say, how much is it going to cost? And their view is, we <laughs> know in time it'll come back. Like Patagonia, yeah. you know, we know in time we will have more consumers, we'll get Absolutely. better people working for us, we'll have a better place in the world. We know it'll repair itself, but I can't show you that graph now. You've got to mm-hmm. have faith. And I think people will come on that journey. And we see that, we see that with our business. You know, we we are, we are so passionate. I mean, we, we've always had this view that we want to be bigger, not because of size or scale, but we, we know that the bigger we are, the more people we can employ that don't have a formal education. And there are wow. very few businesses in the world that can pick up the volume of people with no formal education that we can, give them a career for life, give them learning and development that'll develop them. Um, And I think our stat is about 65% of our promotions are all internal or 70% of our promotions. I mean, the guy who runs Middle East, South Asia, you're talking about 40,000 people, um, Mm. started as a merchandiser, a part-time merchandiser in KZN. And and the the reason is that um, opportunity, uh, sorry, potential is... Um, not disproportionately um, uh, uh, distributed. It can be whether you're born in Kailicha, whether you're born in Santon, whether you're born in Mumbai, or whether you're born in New York. The possibility that you have potential is the mm. same. Mm. Opportunity is completely disproportionately distributed. And so the chance if you're born in a slum in Mumbai that you'll get an opportunity to fulfill your potential is so small Wow. That it's almost non-existent. And we believe that we almost have an obligation to hoover up all these people that don't have the opportunity, but have the potential and give them the skills and the training and the learning and the curiosity Mm. to fulfill that potential. Because we know as a business, we're going to get rewarded by that value to us as an employee, as a partner, as a Mm. shareholder, as a whatever. Um, I realize we've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole, but... No, no, no. It's such an interesting rabbit hole. And I want to actually, there's a couple of things I want to mention. The first is I'm a skeptic by nature. So I want to challenge you on picking up potential. Cynic better. Cynic, yeah. yeah, Cynic, skeptic, uh, nihilist by worldview. Like I just fundamentally believe that the things that we do are really not really worth anything. Anyways, my my point on that is I love the angle of what you're saying. Potential exists everywhere equally, but trying to find that potential in a business your size, doesn't that mean that there is churn equal to the uptake of potential? So you see, you think, oh, there's potential there, but actually the guy's lazy and you churn them. 
Like, how do you balance that, yeah. right? Because there's lots of disappointment yeah. when there's lots of success. Sure, it's a great, um, it's a great question. So, um, one, our churn is very low, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, we find that, uh, so I think the, across our entire business, now you're talking about a large portion of our business is at a very, um, I wouldn't say at minimum wage, but around there and just above, you're talking about people who are merchandisers, you know, field marketers, auditors, that kind of thing. Um, mm. The churn through our business, and bear in mind that the vast proportion of those people are at that level. Um, mm-hmm. I think employee engaged is under 10%. I think it's 7 wow. or 8%. Whereas if you had to go to a, a similar retailer set or a similar competitor set, you're talking about 25 to 50%, no yeah. question. And if you talk about a labor broker, you're going at 100%, you know, no question. So we, we wow. have a very, very strong proposition as an employer and people typically stay with us for a long, long, mm. long time. Um, the other point is that we are responsible to find those people with potential. It's not up to, they have to be reciprocal in their, um, you know, their embracing of it. But I I, I sort of, and I I keep kind of repeating this more and more, but if the people who are not in a responsibility, do not have the opportunity um, to help those who are um, willing to pick up that help and do their part to accelerate themselves, then there's no point. You know, we're in the, mm. we're in the position, we're in a wonderful position where we can help find these people with, with potential and give them opportunity. That is our responsibility. Once we find those people and give them, you know, the potential to, to grow, if they don't want to take it, that's fine. You know, some people that's are happy them. with moving one or two places and that's an end, but you, you, you'll find that people are desperate for opportunity and um, desperate to, uh, even if they don't have potential to become, you know, a global CEO or something like that, they're desperate to improve themselves um, in most yeah. cultures in the world. And I, I think it's our responsibility to give them that opportunity and help them through. Yeah. I, I think that's beautifully said. Um, okay. What do you wish someone had told you when you were just starting out? Whatever, sorry. Go to university. You'll get a better job if you finish on time. Um, no, that's, that's not true at all. I made a lot, made a lot more money gambling. Um, I, I had, a, I had a, I had a big problem, you see, because I went to Vits. Um, so the deal with my parents was if you, and this was for all, all of my brothers now, if you passed first year university, you could go to UCT. They wouldn't let you out of their sight until they had like, you know, allowed you to. Okay. And so clearly I never made it to Cape Town. But um, what happened was uh, Gold Reef City Casino was two off-ramps further than Vitz University, for those of you who know Joe. <laughs> so every day I would drive to the Vitz University off-ramp and I thought to myself, if I go to the casino, there is the chance that I will make money today that I can use for drinking tonight. But if I go to university, it's going to at least take me three or four years before I can get a job and start earning money. And so I would go to the, go, you know, I was a very good blackjack player. And, and so, I, I, but yeah, if somebody had said to me, don't be stupid, um, you know, I think that that's the one thing. I think if somebody had said to me, higher education is a gift, you spoiled fucking brat, see it as a gift, stop being so arrogant and learn. Um, I don't, I don't think I would have learned any more or less than I did. You know, I certainly don't think computational maths and statistics, um, would have stood me in massively good stead more than I already know today. But what it would have done is it would have given me the habit of attending, listening, learning, you know, that, and I think that's very, very important. I think if you have the Mm. opportunity and the luxury and the, uh, uh, the gift of being able to, to, get a tertiary education. If you don't take it, you're a fucking arrogant bastard. And, and, and I was, uh, and 
I think, <laughs> unfortunately, I wouldn't have listened. You know, I think what, what would I wish somebody had told me? I bet you they told me. I bet you they all yep. told me. And, and I, I, I see it when I talk to people who are kind of entering the working world now. They don't listen and that's fine. And, you know, because there is a naivety in sort of youth that is important because you think you can change. And an arrogance in youth. Yeah, there is. And, you yeah. know, the, the cliched saying is that, you know, youth is wasted on the young. It's wasted it is. on the young. I, I have no doubt that my parents and uh, people I respected told me all of this stuff at the time. And I thought, you know what? You don't know what you're talking about. And I, I probably still am to a degree still that arrogant, well, uh, still a portion of that arrogant. Um, and I think that the people younger than me are even more arrogant, you know? Um, and I guess by the time, hopefully, as you go through life, you get less arrogant, you realize how little you know. Um, yeah. But then you get frustrated with the people younger than you because they didn't know. The Dunning-Kruger effect. Dunning Kruger, uh, Adam Grant calls it the uh, the the mountain of stupidity. You know, when you get like that first little the mountain of stupidity, you stand on top of it, and then you go over the edge, and you realize, okay, I'm on the mountain of stupidity. Spot on. Okay, uh, finally, and this could be anything. What's keeping you up at night? God, this is a good question. Um, I have two two young kids, so uh, that, that keeps me up at night a fair amount. Um, if it's not one of them uh, headbutting me or kicking me in the head because they you know, sure. somehow make it into our bed at some point. Um, but really, what keeps me up at night is the world. It's a sad realization that the world is not fair. Um, and the world is, is broken and breaking from so many perspectives, environmentally, socioeconomically, um, the divide between rich and poor, it, it is so broken. The system is so broken. You look at the, you look at North America and you look at the change in wealth in the billionaires versus, you know, those on yeah. minimum wage. Just in the last two years. Just in the last two years. It is disgraceful and disgusting that we mm. live in a world that is not radically changing to fix itself because it's headed for doom in so many ways, you know, from a, an environmental perspective to a socioeconomic to an environment. That, that really bugs me. I, you know, I think about people, a lot of my friends have chosen not to have kids, which I really do respect from many perspectives. Uh, one of those perspectives, yeah, sure. You know, first of all, it just is fucking hard. Like, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Uh, but, but one of those perspectives that I dwell on is this idea of bringing humans into a world that I think is, is fucked. You know, I really do. And, and I think that we will fix some of the pressing problems as we go, you know, when we yeah. run out of water, we'll fix that problem. Um, when we pollute the world into, uh, you know, non-existence, we'll work out that problem. And, you know, th this, this world that we're bringing children into that if you're born in a place that is a rural slum, you just will never get out of poverty. You may never have clean water. You may never have access to healthcare. You may never have the basic human rights. That frightens me no end. Um, mm. And the way that we're, we're talking about it a lot now, which is better, mm. um, but we're not actively changing it. You know, there are a few of us that are changing. I, I, I hope that we're, I don't think we're doing enough as a business, but I, the path that we've chosen to take over the next five or 10 years is radically um, mm. transformed. And I'm proud of that. Mm. But there is so much evil in this world. There are just, you know, it, 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 it scares me. It, it really, and that I, I think if, if I sit down quietly, I can't think about it for too long because it really fucking scares me. 
Cool. Good answer. Scary answer. Okay. And in closing, tell me and my listeners where they can find you, where they can follow you, where they can hear more of your insights or where they can buy from you, whatever it is you want to promote. Sure. Um, I, I, I don't want to really promote anything. You can go, if you want to know about our business, uh, you know, you can, uh, you can email me, go find me on LinkedIn, uh, Michael Smolin or, or Mike Smolin, go, go look at our website, smolin.com. Um, I encourage you more importantly, go look at our purpose story because that. I'm most proud of, of anything and, and go um, follow us on LinkedIn because that's, or, or follow us on Instagram because it's fun and because Instagram mm-hmm. is a lot more interesting than LinkedIn. But you, you know, if you follow us on, on LinkedIn or, or on Instagram, um, just experience who we are. I think, I think that's what we're most proud of. And um, we, we, we really are, our, our purpose is um, to create growth and transform lives by building a diverse, inclusive um, business that connects people, brands, and opportunities, and I think I, I think we live it. I, I think your your litmus test of there is no marketing, a purpose marketing. Either you are purposeful uh, or it's just bullshit. And I, I, I hope you, every now and again, all of you, um, hold us to that standard. And and if you feel like it's bullshit, call us out because uh, we're, we're 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 as authentic as we can be. Awesome, Mike. Thank you for your time. Uh, this was Absolutely. a riveting hour. I hugely appreciate it. Cool. Thank you so much. And um, great to be on. And I, I look forward to seeing you in person. Thank you for listening to the Curious Cult podcast, the show where we talk to incredible people about their fascinating curiosity. If you like this episode, please rate the show, like it, share it, and generally be kind to us and tell people about it. My goal is to spark curiosity that changes the world. And you can help by talking about the show to anyone who will listen. Stay curious. Until next time.